Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, especially with sports celebrities or uh, interviews after a, a game or a match. It's in vogue for professional athletes to now talk about themselves as blessed. I'm blessed. After a victory or after the season, referring to the millions of dollars that they make, they say, we're blessed or I'm blessed. And some even give credit to God. I want to thank God for what He's done. And, and I appreciate that. And it makes me think, well, what is your relationship with God? And some will even take it a step further. Some will give credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl and the, the MVP uh, interview afterward, but Nick Foles, a devoted follower of Christ, said, hey, I just want to use this as a platform to give glory to Christ. And I, I appreciate that. And I'm not here to judge anyone for, for saying that. But I do ask the question, I do ask the question, when they say they're blessed, what do they mean? How do they see God, the one who's blessed them? They see Him as the one from, every, from whom every good thing comes, the one who gives life purpose, the one who has saved our very soul, who's made a way for us to have a right relationship with Him, or do they feel they just need to kind of tip their hat to Him because they want to keep the blessing coming of having a good life, having the opportunity to make a living and making more money than they know what to do, do with? What does it mean to be truly blessed? And what if those things were taken away? Or what if you never had them to begin with? I think the same thing can be said about us. If wealth, possessions, lifestyle, position, reputation, health and well-being were taken away, are we somehow excluded from God's blessing? And can some of the things that we take as a blessing, even from God, actually be getting in the way, an obstacle to ex experiencing the blesser himself. Today we're going to look at what I call a bombshell sermon that Jesus preaches. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them open to Luke chapter 6. It's what I call the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus is going to cause us to ask the question today, what does it mean to be truly blessed? Where does that come from? What does it mean? And how do I live my life? And are there some things getting in the way of that? So we're going to read it right now. And take a look and then, then we'll take it apart and, and see what, what Christ has for us. So this is Luke chapter 6. And we're going to pick it up at verse 17 last week. If you remember, Jesus had called his 12 disciples, and now he's coming down from the mountain. So let's pick it up at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. Sermon on the plain. Get it? A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, 
from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them, healing them all. And looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and dive deeply into Jesus' words today. Lord Jesus, these are, are challenging words. And we want to receive them. We want to let them do your work in our lives and our hearts. And we want to see what you mean when you say blessed are those. And we want to take seriously the warning of woe that's here. So Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes in our hearts to see. Pray that you give me grace and wisdom to proclaim the truth. And that we would receive it with humility. And if we need to change actions or attitudes, you'd give us grace to do that. So Lord, do your work in us, we pray. This is your word. Use it for your glory and your ends. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, truth be known, I've just bitten off a little bit of this sermon. It goes to the end of this chapter. And we're going to be looking at that for the rest of this month. But this is much like the Sermon on the Mount, on the mountain, we find in Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7. They're very much the same, have similar material. They start the same. And they end the same. But I believe that they are two different sermons. There are two different occasions with common themes. And we're going to see that. I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later. But how, how is that? Well, first of all, in seminary I spent three years in the inner cities going to a church called the Rock of Our Salvation, sitting under Dr. Raleigh Washington. And it was a church that was really committed to racial reconciliation. And so as, if that's the case, then you would suspect you would hear many sermons about that. And I heard a lot of them. In fact, I was there for three years, I was there, 
it was like, I know what passage you're going to. I know what illustrations you're going to use. I mean, I was, I was, but every one of those sermons still had a little different nuance. And I think it's the same with Jesus. He's using similar material, but giving a little different nuance to what he wants to say and what he wants to address with this crowd that's before him. And I don't know about you, but as I look at this passage, it's tremendously challenging when I think about what Jesus has for us. And I ask the question, what did he intend for uh, the crowd that was hearing this? You know, oftentimes Jesus says things or does things that fly in the face of conventional wisdom and or understanding. So it makes sense that Jesus would have a different take on what it means to be blessed. And the, the first thing I just want to point out is that there is a crowd of a whole bunch of diverse people there who are listening to him. Just look at verse 17. It's a large crowd, and some of them were his disciples. It wasn't just the twelve. It's a group of people that says, hey, I think I want to follow Jesus. But there are a great number of people who were checking him out. People from Judea and Jerusalem, it says. These were the people from the right location as far as the people who were, had mainstream Judaism going in their lives. They're up to, to find out what Jesus was about. But then there are those from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. You know who lived there? The Gentiles. These were people who were on their borders who were hearing about this Jesus. We need to go check him out. So this sermon is for all people, a diverse crowd, people who came to him because they were in need. They came to him to hear him, to be healed of diseases and uh, be cured of trouble. Uh, they were troubled by impure spirits. They were cured, and people tried to touch him because power was coming out of him. A diverse crowd, they came to him in need. The power of God was on display, and Jesus has something to share with something for all. But what Jesus had to say to them was just as shocking to them as perhaps it is to us today. Because in the ancient worldview, this is what people thought for the most part. If you're wealthy, prosperous, powerful, popular, you're blessed by God. You have His favor. You must be living right. You must be doing something right to be blessed by God. But if you are poor, afflicted, tragedy has stuck, has struck your family, you have bad health. And by the way, it didn't take much for you to go from, from prosperity to uh, poverty. Everyone's living on a subsistence living, living life. And you were not well regarded by the blessed. Something must be wrong with your family. You must be involved in some sort of sin, and God is punishing you. You're out of favor. It's the mistake that Job's friends make. It's the, it's the mistake that even Jesus' disciples make. In John chapter 9, they come upon a blind man, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, for him to be punished? And Jesus said, neither. This man is here to be to be used to glorify God. Now this worldview is not without 
some sort of a biblical background, right? In Deuteronomy, you've got Deuteronomy chapter 28, you've got a blessing for obedience and you've got curses for disobedience. But if this is the worldview formula you plug in to discern what is good and what is evil in the world, it can be very shallow. It doesn't take into account other factors. The fact that we live in a fallen world, first of all. Second of all, that there are others that might perpetrate something against us. They might afflict us doesn't take into account the patience of God and how he oftentimes uses adversity for growth and for good and how he can even use those who deny and oppose him to accomplish his good purposes. So Jesus flips this worldview completely upside down. But again, at first glance, it seems kind of strange to us, shocking that if you are poor, you're needy, you experience sorrow, if you're maligned in life, well then in the end, end, you'll experience all the good stuff because you suffered in this life. On the other hand, if you experience some prosperity, eat regularly, experience some joy and laughter, had a good reputation amongst others, then, well, this is all you get. Because at the end, there's, there's payback. It's just a, a divine flip-flop. And that seems strange. That seems, kind of frankly, an understanding that is superficial. See, we all know that there are some wealthy people that are very godly. It's in Scripture. It's in life. We also know some poor people who are scoundrels. But what Jesus does here is he issues a wake-up call. He's issuing a wake-up call. Because the kingdom of God is coming. And he's asking the question, where is your hope? If you're going to study any Jesus words, you know oftentimes that Jesus comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And he's offering a wake-up call. First of all, four statements, a blessing For the poor to take solace in. To have hope in. Number two, four statements of warning for the prosperous to take stock. See, when Jesus first appears, he starts his public ministry. He reads from Isaiah. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, in a world that says might makes right, and you people who are poor, well, I'm sorry, you just lost the cosmic lottery. Deal with it. Jesus says no. The world may abandon you, but God has not. So blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I ask the question, why? See, in Mark, I mean in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the the kingdom of God. 
That's much easier to understand for me. I don't know about you. And then he says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Again, Jesus says in the, in the Matthew Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. And then he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And again, I ask the question, why? few things. Number one, God does identify with the poor and oppressed. In Proverbs 14, 31, he says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. See, every man, every woman you meet, whether they're poor or rich, is made in the image of God. If you oppress them, you are oppressing someone who is made in the image of God and you are showing contempt for your maker. On the other hand, if you take care of them, you are honoring your maker. Number two, God cares about justice for the oppressed. Psalm 9, 7 and 9. And obviously, there are many more verses. These are just some ones I want to highlight. The Lord reigns forever. He has established His throne of, for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. What he's saying is, I see and value the oppressed and the downtrodden. So God identifies, cares for the justice, cares for the oppressed the downtrodden. But I'm going to say something that now is going to seem totally contradictory, okay? Listen to me. There is nothing inherently virtuous about being poor. There is nothing that is inherently virtuous about being poor, okay? In fact, in Proverbs, poverty is oftentimes the end result of those who are lazy and slothful. So there's no... You know, how people get there, there are different, different ways they get there. But here's the point, and I think this is where Jesus is going in this particular sermon. If one is poor, if they're hungry, if they're sorrowful, they know they have a need. They know they have a need, and they cannot fill it themselves. They need someone who is greater than themselves to come and meet that need. And that someone greater has arrived. And he's saying, God has not forgotten you. Jesus' half-brother, who didn't believe in Jesus while he was alive until he was resurrected, said this in his letter, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him. You see, I think oftentimes people who are poor, who are oppressed and destitute, faith is much more easy for them because they know their need. And they're in a place to look up and to cry out and to see God be faithful. Folks, if we're meeting all of our needs ourselves, we never have an occasion to cry out. But if you know your need, then you are, are willing to cry out on the one who can provide and save you. 
I had a youth pastor that once said, you know, you never see a miracle until you need one. You never see a miracle until you need one. Sometimes in our desire to be so self-sufficient, we might be cutting out what God wants to do in our lives. And this is an opportunity to identify in the Savior who came to identify with us. To identify with the poor even. We read it earlier in this gospel, this same gospel. Jesus, who is God, puts on flesh. I don't care what you say. Going from heaven to earth is a downgrade anyway you slice it, right? But then where was he born? Did you ever grow up hearing, say, hearing someone say this? Shut the door. Were you born in a barn? Jesus literally was. Think about that. He was born to a blue-collar family, lived in a backwoods town. In fact, one of his own disciples says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus came to identify even with the poorest. In order that we might identify with Him. And indeed, if we do identify with Him, we are blessed. Verse 22, Blessed are you when the people, when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you. Your name is evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. You see, to identify with Jesus, to identify with the Son of Man could get you in trouble. It did during Jesus' time. The religious elite did not like Jesus. They did not like what He was doing. And if you identified with him if you were saying, yeah, I, I believe in that guy. It could get you ostracized. It could get you kicked out of a, a synagogue. And in our world, we talk about Jesus as being the only way, the truth, and life. Well, that's bigoted. That's exclusivism. What's wrong with you Christians? And then the message, yeah, you need a Savior to save you from your sin. Who are you calling a sinner? What do you know about me? To identify with Jesus oftentimes can get you into trouble. And historically, that's true. To identify with Jesus oftentimes got you kicked out of the club. People would put their faith in Christ. It's like, what? You get kicked out of your family. You might get kicked out of your business connections. And you would face oppression. You would face persecution. You would lose your advantages in life because of identifying with Jesus. It was true then, and it's true now. You go to places like India or any of the Middle Eastern countries, you identify with Christ you don't have as much opportunity as the average citizen in that area. You know what I think is also interesting here? 
is realize that this gospel, this gospel of Luke, was written by a Gentile believer, and he's conveying this message about Jesus to a Gentile crowd, many of whom were possibly Roman slaves. Roman slaves that basically the world has told them, look, you're just a disposable commodity. I hope you eat, drink, and be merry, but you know what? That's all you got coming to you. Rather, this is a message that God has not forgotten about you. And even if you are poor, and you are hungry, and you are sorrowful, and you are afflicted for my name, God has not forgotten about you. And let's take it, let's take it to the 21st century now, okay? We're sending a team to Haiti in a couple weeks. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever been there, it's one of the poorest places on this, in the Western Hemisphere, folks. And we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to people there. And I'm going to tell you what, if you put your faith in Jesus, that does not necessarily mean you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It may never happen. At least according to this world's standards. But if you have Christ, then you have what matters. If you have Christ, you have all the riches. And God has not excluded you. See, this gospel needs to be true in Haiti as well as the United States. Our hope ultimately is in what Christ has done, not in the prosperity around us. And so we flip over to these four statements of warning to the prosperous to take, to take stock. Life's winners are not as secure as they think. But woe to you who are rich, verse 24, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will not go hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. Woe is one of those interesting words, isn't it? That's what we say to horses. Whoa, Nellie. But it's, it's a word of warning. It's a word of slow down. But if we're honest... What Jesus just cataloged here is pretty common to our life experience, right? Compared to the rest of the world, we live a pretty comfortable life here in Rochester. No one's asking if we will eat. The questions we're asking is, what am I going to eat? What restaurant am I going to go to today? Our pen, we have a penchant for entertainment, so we laugh a lot. And all of us like to get along with others, don't we? Because we're Minnesota nice. Why does Jesus say this? Is anyone who's experienced any good things in life, are they destined just to be hammered? How do we understand this? I think to be sure, we can take this back to the Roman world. There were plenty of people who were living off the oppression of others. They were wealthy because they were in a place of power, and they were, they were exploiting others. I think that's true. I think that's part of what's going on here. 
And God cares about how we treat the poor. Jesus is going to tell us a parable about a man named Lazarus and a rich man. And this man Lazarus is sitting at a rich man's door and this rich man does nothing. And then when judgment day comes, Lazarus is comforted. The rich man experiences his own reward, which is torment. Let me just explain this attitude of woe of those who laugh. It really is an attitude of arrogance, scorn for others and their misfortune. God will not be mocked. He's going to bring justice to the oppressed. But this word of woe was even heeded by some in Jesus' time. Jesus is going to meet a guy named Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. And if you know what tax collectors did, they exploited others. They charged exorbitant amount of money to get the taxes for the Roman government, and then they kept the rest. And Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, then I'm going to give them four times what I cheated them. I'm going to make restitution. There was repentance there. But I don't think many of us here are making a living oppressing others here. I don't think any of us are loan sharks here. I don't think any of us are exploiting people. We're just living everyday, middle-class American lives in a, in a community that's relatively prosperous. I think more practically for us, the temptation is to make prosperity our idol. To make prosperity our idol. A little bit later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to tell, tell a parable about a man called, what he calls a rich fool. He had a bumper crop. He had more than his barns could hold. He hit the lottery, folks. He's going to be set for life. He says, what am I going to do? This is what he says to himself. Verse 18 of chapter 12. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus grain. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This man said, I have life. Man, I've gathered it in. I've got the plan. I'm going to live high on the hog. And it's easy for us to believe that the more stuff to have, we have, the more property we have, the more life we have. That is the deception of prosperity. And Jesus will say in that same chapter, He said, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Our temptation is to put our hope in these things and our temptation is to get attached to them. In the same gospel, in Luke chapter 18, there's going to be a very earnest young man, a rich young ruler is going to come to Jesus and says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know what Jesus is going to say to him? He says, you know the commandments. You know, honor your father and mother. I can't remember all that he, he listed off. It weren't the complete Ten Commandments. But he said, yeah, Rabbi, from, from, from very early on, I've kept all these. He says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. 
And the scripture says his face fell. Jaw dropped. Because ultimately, he was attached to those things and could not let them go to follow Jesus. He says, I want eternal life on my terms. Now let me say this, just as as a cursory statement. I don't think Jesus is calling every follower of his to sell everything and follow him. Although he might be calling some of us to do that. It's not out of the realm of possibility. But Jesus was identifying, identifying the, the idol in this man's life. And there's a French author, I would call him a secular prophet, named Andre Gidey, who said, All that you're unable to give possesses you. All that we are unable to give possesses us. There is a use for prosperity and earthly wealth to bless others and to invest in eternity. In chapter 12 of this same gospel, Jesus is going to say, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out a a treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, with prosperity, there's a temptation to believe that this is what's real. This is is what matters. And to live like this is all there is. A temptation even to cloak our faith if that prosperity is threatened. And Jesus is saying, if this is you, whoa! Whoa! Stop! Slow down! Think about what you're living for. What is really important, take stock and be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Are you living like this is all there is? Your lips may be saying one thing, but what does your life say? What does your life say? How are you living? What's important? What are you living for? I'm going to ask my youngest daughter to help me here for this illustration. And by the way, it's not a, an original illustration. I saw it last week at a concert. Emma, if you'll head out this door all the way, hold it up high. I've got a rope here. And let's stretch it over these people's heads. We've got to keep it tight, okay? All right, keep it tight. Now go out the door. Keep going to your to your left. Keep going. Oh, got a Myers kid in the head. All right. <laughs> Keep going. Keep it tight. Yes, absolutely. This was unrehearsed, obviously. So you see this rope? This little black mark, it represents your time on earth. And this rope represents eternity. And it's going out the door, down the street, 
onto Highway 90, onto I-35, on down to 80, all the way into San Francisco, crossing the ocean, into Hawaii, all the way to Japan, across Asia, over Europe, back over the eastern seaboard about 20 times. This is your life. This is eternity. But what you do with this little black mark determines how you're going to experience all of eternity. Just to give you a perspective of how our lives impact what our future is. Okay, Emma, you can come back in. Keep it tight. Oh, okay. I may need some help to get this from the aisle here. Just pass it on down the row if you wouldn't mind. That'd be great. Here's my point again. What we're living for now has an impact on how eternity looks. And folks, I am not preaching a works-based salvation. I am not. Rather, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here's the deal also. What we really believe is usually demonstrated in our actions, and Jesus is pointing to what lasts. He's saying, folks, I want to warn you. I want to warn you about where you're going. If you're living for the prosperity of this life, of this earth, then woe to you. Because it's not going to last. Many of you know my father, who passed away three years ago, was an Olympic wrestler. Went to two Olympiads, 60 and 64. He won a bronze medal. It's not a boasting point because I had nothing to do with it. In fact, I wasn't even born then yet. But here's the point. My father passed away about three and a half years ago. That bronze medal is sitting on my parents' wall in Oakland, California. It's not doing him one bit of good. But you know what did? He put his faith in Jesus Christ and sought to live for him. I'll bet as my dad looks back from eternity... There's some things he might say, you know what, I wish I had adjusted what I'm living for. Folks, none of us are going to regret what we gave for the kingdom of God. And by the way, this is not a ploy for money, so don't hear me saying that. But investing in the kingdom of God and saying that is the most important thing for me. Investing in the one who is the Son of Man. The one who actually gives himself for us. In his kingdom, which manifests itself in my heart and your heart in the hearts of men and women. And by the way, it's not very impactful if we do oppress people or ignore those who do have need. But we need to value him, to value his kingdom, his gospel, and be willing to give up some of this earthly stuff, these possessions, maybe all of it even, in order that we might treasure Him above all, and thus be truly blessed. Many of you have heard this quote before, but I'm going to use it. It's the late Jim Elliott who gave his life in the mission field. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is saying with this sermon. He's saying, whoa, take stock. What are you living for?
at the end of days, what will you have invested in? That's what he wants us to know today. Let me pray for us and I'll invite Alex and the worship team to go ahead and close us today. Indeed, Lord Jesus, this sermon is challenging. It convicts me. It convicts me when I, I, I live for temporary stuff. And I'm grateful that you give us good things, but it's not where life is truly found. It is in a Savior who came and gave his life for us and who gives us his life as we put our faith in him and transforms us to live for a new reality. So Lord, would you give us that perspective today? Again, do your work in our hearts. Help us to value you and treasure you above all in order that we might indeed be truly blessed. And it's in your name, Lord, I pray these things. Amen. Please stand.